Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 134 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Hello. Hello, Dylan. Hi, everybody. Hi. How's everybody doing? Toby, I am dying to hear how your progress is going on Infinite Jest. Again, it's a it's a delicate dance because I don't want to give you any, you know, actual spoilers for the review. But I will say, let's see, what else have I experienced recently in the book? Um, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, Canada versus USA like spy action, <laughs> but in like a farcical way. Um, there's like many chapters of the book are like this discussion between a Canadian terrorist from a cell that only employs people in wheelchairs and a United States spy who is like cross-dressing for his job, but, uh, doesn't like it very much. And, you know, they talk for conservatively a hundred pages so far. So that's an experience I've had recently. Do you feel comfortable telling us what page you're on? Sure. Yeah. I'm on like 450. I'm I'm into it. Yeah. I would argue that a lot of books are shorter than 450 pages. It's true. So I, um, it's 1100. Basically what's making it not that stressful is I have a reading goal. I have to read 24 pages a day, every day until we record, uh, you know, the episode that I'll have to review it on. And, you know, 24 pages of infinite jest can, can blow by or 24 pages can be a real struggle, but I'm, I'm getting it done. I did the same thing with Anna Karenina. You got to mm-hmm. do it. You got to break it into small parts that are achievable. Otherwise, Bailey, you never feel like you we know you progress. read Anna Karenina. Come on. Just as a reminder, no. I did what? read Anna Karenina and Les Mis. No, you have to do it in one city. <laughs> Am I able after this to just reference the fact that I've read Infinite Jest all the time? Bailey and I can do it back to back. Yeah, we can get little badges like when I was in Girl Ooh, Scouts yeah. and you got little badges on your vest for everything mm-hmm. that you've accomplished. You can have the Infinite Jest one. Did you have the David Foster Wallace badge when you were in Girl Scouts? <laughs> It's a sad tennis ball. Aw. Dylan, you were referencing a moment we had yesterday at the bookstore. Do you want to share about the the bookseller's encouragement? Oh, yeah. Well, we were at a bookstore yesterday. Not a normal bookstore, Skylight Books. It's a different one. I'm sorry. But um, when we were checking out, the girl next to me was buying a court of Rose and Thorns? Court of Thorns and Roses? Akotar? A court of Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> the three books of them. And uh, she was saying, I was like, oh, man, these are take me forever to read. And then the bookseller said, like, oh, you're doing it one sitting. They laughed. And then he kind of seriously said, I believe in you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh, and then, Dylan, uh, not to, you know, put you on the spot again, but will you share the other thing that happened at the other bookstore? <laughs> so far, this podcast is just Bailey pointing at me and Dylan and saying, speak. <laughs> <laughs> she just wants this because I, this I is a good story it's not a good story I went to pick up a book a gift that Andrew left for me and mm. Bailey also had of course because she always has gifts waiting for uh, her at the bookstore gifts are, mean like pre-orders yes I call uh. them gifts uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but she had the new Grady Hendrix book pre-ordered and so I was talking to the guy there and it's like it should be under there under Bailey and he stopped and said oh you're her husband huh like, yes, you're the other half. So I'm famous, guys. <laughs> that's that's the story? Is that Dylan that's was like... <laughs> She's more than podcast famous. She's bookstore famous. Guys, mm, acknowledge. 
I do acknowledge. It is a big deal. But that does lead me into the fact that pointing at myself, I did get one piece of shame, which is the new Grady Hendrix book, How to Sell a Haunted House. Mm. But guys, let's be real. When it's time for me to read that, I'm going to read that in like a day. So, Are you going to wait? Just like Anna Karenina? <laughs> I'm not going to wait necessarily, Toby, but I've been, I started A Deadly Education before I picked it up, so I want to finish that first. Oh, I enjoyed A Deadly Education by Naomi Novik. Name that author. There you go. Um, I am shame-free. Nothing mm. anyone asked, but Ooh. okay, I'll tell you. I'm beaming with pride this week. Toby, I assume you are a prideful man as well. I am always a prideful man and slothful, uh, lustful, but yeah, no, no books for me. Hmm. Bailey, seems like you're losing the new year of shame competition. Do I lose it if I pre-ordered it before the yes. new year? Yes. No, mm-hmm. yes, you do. Because yep. you didn't announce it earlier. Mm-hmm. You only announced it now. <laughs> Come on. I murdered that man last year. <laughs> uh, I do have one. I don't know if this is interesting. I think this will be interesting for only Pejos. Yeah, well, thank God they're the only people who listen to this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, the new Lee Bardugo book has come out, the sequel Mm. to Ninth House. This book is called Hellbent, and Mm -hmm. I'm very curious to know what happened with Darlington. Me too. So I want to read it, yet, guys, it's in hardback, and all my other Lee Bardugos are paperback. Do I buy it? Oh. You could rent it from a library and then eventually buy a copy for your collection Mm -hmm. if you want to read it quickly. Mm. Support your industry. So you're saying, do you stay or do you leave Bardugo? <laughs> I don't know that that's what she's saying, except I do think that that was a pun you thought of. <laughs> that's, uh, that's peak advice from the two read list. So we're just going to have to move on. But Andrew, you understand, right? What my No, I understand is. where you're coming from, but I think we have also offered you a solution. Or Billy, you could just buy it and then return it. Never. Oh, do I talk about it? <sighs> well, yes, Dylan, why don't you share about it? Yeah, I, I sent you guys this news story, right? Yes. I heard about it on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me because I'm a I'm a NPR guy. Wow. Yeah. You know, Andrew, you might enjoy Infinite Jest. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you, please. Because <laughs> you guys might have heard of the story from, I don't know if we have a crossover between people that listen to this and listen to NPR. Certainly not. <laughs> Certainly but, not. Uh, there was an independent bookstore, I want to say in Chicago, that this uh, person that was, uh, what's it called when you're getting your house ready? Staging a house. Staging your house, yeah. They went to they went to a local bookstore and bought $800 worth of books just to like put up around their house to show how smart they are and then came back after the holidays and returned them all. And there was a huge uh, Instagram post about it, about like how this was like an independent bookstore and this was basically like a huge chunk of the money that they needed for the holiday season that got taken away. And do not do that. Yeah. Yes. But the happy news is they negotiated with the guy, I think probably because he just wouldn't leave because they were like, no, we're not giving you the money. But then he wouldn't leave until they gave him something. This is my theory. But they ended up converting it to store credit. So that's Uh something. I didn't know that. Yeah, nice. I was reading some follow-up because it was very upsetting to me. <laughs> yeah, Billy was very upset this whole time when you heard about this. And it's viral now, so a lot of people have been coming and supporting the bookshop. So. so That's good. But basically, if you are going home shopping anytime soon and you see somebody's uh, places staged, make sure you go through each one of their books and slightly damage it so that way they <laughs> can't return it. Or if you're going to stage a house, just get used books. Like, yeah, or just admit <laughs> you don't read. Books? Yeah, there's no rule that you have to have books in your house if you don't otherwise want them. Yeah. Toby, about your house, um, it's there's only one book here, Infinite Jest, just on the bookshelf. Yeah, there's like lights pointed at it. <laughs> that should and be like enough. And like a little trophy. <laughs> <laughs> 
my office, I just got some paintings hung up and I have a bookshelf there with mm-hmm. reference books. And the art installer was like, oh, you should add more books, but just, you know, it doesn't matter what they are, just as long as the spines look pretty. And I was like, sir, do you know? I run a library. Did he tell you, it's like, oh, I know a good bookstore that has a good return policy that you can just like <laughs> buy books from and then return them later. I have a local bookstore I hate. Well, here is our podcast and <laughs> here is Toby and... Toby, do you have a book that you read this week? Strangely enough, I do. It's called Here is New York by E.B. White. Um, here's my review of it. <laughs> uh, Here is New York by E.B. White is a travel article masquerading as a book written by a former Whoa! resident of the city, former resident of the city, apparently dismayed by the progress of society as a whole. <laughs> wow. Uh-oh. There's a lot of commentary in that there log line. Yeah. Usually there's I'm, I'm enjoying these log lines with salt added recently. Um, So Here's New York is, um, as the pretty long introduction to this very short book tells us, um, was actually produced as an article for Holiday Magazine in 1948. Apparently, post-war America finally had enough money to travel around, so this magazine called Holiday would pay famous writers of the day to visit certain cities around the world and try to capture them uh, in order to induce people to visit. Ah, so are there other ones like Here is Chicago and stuff or? Here is Gary, Indiana, (laughs) written by Charlotte Bronte. (laughs) They brought her up from the grave. Um, No, this is, I think, the only one that became famous enough to merit being its own quote unquote book. Gotcha. So this is uh, hilarious. This, you know, framing device is hilarious for two reasons. Uh, Number one, it seems that they couldn't convince old EB to go further abroad than New York because the other (laughs) destinations were like worldwide uh, because he had settled in Maine and refused to leave. And, um, And two, if I read this essay in 1948, the last place I would ever visit is New York City. Um, So going back a little bit, E.B. White is best known for two things. Um, First, he wrote the ubiquitous children's book, Charlotte's Web, which I think at least most people of our generation had some kind of contact with. Do we all read Charlotte's Web? It's a tremendous book. Okay. (laughs) Bailey with the... Some pig. (laughs) Yes, there we go. Some book. (laughs) Some pig, the one thing we all remember from it. Um, And his... Templeton. Templeton the rat. Okay, keep going. Can we keep going? Hey, well, you're challenging me to remember. Do you want me to just yell on things that happen in the book? Do we have one more? Spiders. (laughs) No. Stinky eggs. Mm, Yeah, that's true. Um, And he also contributed about 50% of the writing advice book, The Elements of Style, which is still in wide use today. He co-authored, sort of, with a man named uh, Robert Engel. And he co-authored it with him basically over the course of a span of years. E.B. White did the first pass at it, and then Robert uh, added to it. Uh, As I said, it's still in wide use today as a kind of measuring rod against your clarity of prose and your style. And he's widely respected um, because of that. And he was an extremely respected writer of his time. Um, He also did some poetry. What if I told you that Robert Engel is his stepson who continued his work and that the work itself is E.B. White iterating on his former professor at Cornell, William Strunk Jr.'s work, hence why it's Strunk and White's element of style. Whoa. And then his stepson kept editing it. Wow. Wowzers. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll get more into his uh, writing pedigree during facts, but that's in case you're wondering, that's his uh, his stepson who who kept working on his work afterwards. I did not know that. The girl's named Fern. And would one of you guys end up getting the elements of style from the choosing? 
I have read it, and I, I do own a copy, but I have already read it, so it's not going to ever happen to me. That's kind of one of the books I would put in my office art installer. Yeah, that's that's actually <laughs> true. It's a good one to put in your office. Heard of it? Um, also, he wrote Stuart Little, Toby. Oh, he wrote Stuart Little? I forgot about that one. Wow. And Trumpet of the Swan. I don't know that one. So uh, you can tell his kind of writing pedigree in the prose of this book um, because it's just gorgeous. Um, you can tell it's been honed down to a razor edge. It's been passed over, edited in the most clean way possible. There's not one unnecessary word. There's not one unclear phrase. There's some beautiful imagery. Um, and the writing in general is just flawless, which is really impressive. How's the grammar? <laughs> the grammar, also pretty good. But that can only take you so far. Um, E.B. does not really seem that interested in his assignment, although that assignment does seem kind of silly to sum up New York City in 7,500 words. Instead, he kind of rambles here and there, describing various neighborhoods and various ways of living in the city. He puts in a few slice-of-life portraits of a few residents, and that part of the book is fine. It's kind of the beginning. It's not super gripping, but you can see it's him kind of like fulfilling his contract, but it doesn't last for the entire article. We get toward the end uh, where this book slash article really lost me. Um, E.B. takes a hard left turn into kids these days territory. He <laughs> moans and groans quite a lot about buildings and businesses that have changed since his day in the city. He no longer lives there, remember? He's pessimistic in a very old man yells at cloud way about the future of the city. Proponents of this book, the people who say it's amazing, they choose to see this section as a beautifully nostalgic and elegantly sad look at the city. Uh, I really wish they had hired someone who was actually living in the city at the time, who was not disconnected from it and nostalgic for old days past. Like, why would you hire someone to entice people to travel to this city who doesn't live there and who is sad it's changed? I'm sure there were plenty of people in 1948 who were excited about New York City, who could tell you the new spots to go or what was happening that was exciting and new. And instead, we have this guy who's basically like, kids these days and the city will never be the same. It's a, it's a real bummer. Because uh, these days, they don't even read spiderwebs anymore. <laughs> well, New York is famous for actually not having any other writers live in it. That's true. <laughs> Once E.B. White left, he was the only one. <laughs> what it's like in Spinal Tap when they're like Boston, not really a college town. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, overall, E.B. pays lip service to the excitement that can come from living in the city. But he ends on this long trailing note of woe is me and the city because it has the gall to change over time in a way that I can't keep up with anymore. I personally didn't have time for it. I wasn't interested in it and I was wondering why I should even count EB's opinion at this time over anybody else's. Overall, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> I didn't hate it. It was written well, but I can't say you should read it. And I'm going to come down on a, a very, very low three stars for this one. Okay. Yeah. I was expecting, I, it sounded like you were going one. You had salt in your in your log line. You were Simpsons referencing E.B. White from the <laughs> beginning. I really thought it was going to be a one star. Well, so that, I guess, is a testament to his writing ability. Yeah, it shows you how far grammar can go. It is a testament to his writing ability and to the extreme brevity of this book. I read the audiobook, and with a 15-minute introduction, it is an hour-long audiobook. So... <laughs> It's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> brief. So if you guys have a lot of errands and uh, want to just pepper in. So. You want to break from Infinite Jest while you're reading mm -hmm. it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But yes, thank you for that review. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. I have facts about E.B. White, if that's okay. It is good. Yeah, Can I, I guess, guess what his name stands for? Yes, actually. Let's, get, let's do a round table. Ebenezer Benjamin. Elliot Bryan. Esther Brown. Esther Brown. Mm, all these are 
completely wrong. Oh. Elwyn Brooks White oh. was born on July 11th, 1899 in Mount Vernon, New York. Nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father, Samuel, was the president of a piano firm. I did not follow up on what a piano firm is. I imagine they make pianos, but they make maybe it's something pianos. more insidious. No, it's actually a law firm that defends pianos in court. <laughs> yeah. Well, they always get sued after they fall on cartoon characters, yeah. and then they open their mouths, and the keys are there instead of teeth. Mm-hmm. Anywho. <laughs> now, I may be a simple mother- Yamaha. <laughs> Uh, His mother, Jessie Hart White, uh, was the daughter of William Hart, who was a well-known painter of the Hudson School. He also had an older brother named Stan, who would go on to become a professor of... I'm sorry that the name's Stan. (laughs) Oh, his name's like three, like... What was his full name again? Elwin Brooks White. And then Stan. (laughs) Okay, well, presumably Stan is named Stanley and then has a middle name. I just used the name that was given to me in the source. Does he? (laughs) It's uh, Stanley Creeks. Sorry. Are you, are you, okay, I can wait. Are you guys, <laughs> are you guys ready to keep we'll continuing? We'll be good. I want to hear more about Stan. <laughs> he had an older brother named Stan. I'm sure he had a middle name uh, who would go on to become a professor of landscape architecture and apparently was the inventor of the vertical garden. Oh. What's a vertical garden? Well, you know a regular garden? I don't know. I just. Imagine it being vertical. <laughs> I don't know if we should continue with Dylan on the podcast today. He seems to be he seems to be full of beans. (laughs) Bailey, stop giving him all these beans before the podcast. White would go on to attend Cornell University in Ithaca, where he participated in the SATC, which was kind of a super duper ROTC, Mm. um, and where he got the nickname Andy because apparently at that time anyone with the last name White at Cornell got that nickname because the Cornell co-founder was named. Andrew Dixon White. So if you had the last name White, uh, you just got called Andy. So congrats. What a specific Mm. thing. People at Ivy League schools are weird. Yeah. Um, Starting in college, White worked in student journalism before making his career in that afterwards. Uh, He started out West writing for the Seattle Times and the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, as well as working on a fireboat in Alaska. I did not find out what a fireboat is, but some mysteries are better left unsolved. Mm Mm-hmm. So he worked on his fireboat in, in Alaska and eventually returned to New York City and became part of the first wave of writers that uh, were like the staff writers for the newly founded New Yorker magazine. Uh-huh. Though the curmudgeonliness that, that Toby's referring to seems to have creeped in pretty early on in A.B. White's life uh, because he didn't want to work in the office and like wouldn't come in for an interview because of this, <laughs> apparently. I, the story was a little muddled and then eventually agreed to become like a staff writer, which he didn't really have the qualifications for yeah. um, as long as he only had to come in once a week, which was he chose on Thursdays. Wow. He truly was ahead of his time. That was a power yeah. move. Well, he had a champion at the newly founded New Yorker. Uh, Catherine Angle uh, was the literary editor. Uh, she was one of White's earliest champions. And eventually... They got married. Oh. As you say, wait a minute, that name sounds familiar. Oh. There you go. Uh, they had a son named Joel, who would go on to become a naval architect and boat builder in Maine. And Catherine's son from a previous marriage uh, went on to become a sports writer for The New Yorker. And also, as we referenced earlier, it was Richard Angle, who ended up doing the editing of the later versions of Element of Style. Okay, so guys, I know my boyfriend is a bit of a weirdo, but I swear, 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 he's great at grammar, so you should hire him. Thank you. He only wants to come into the office one day a week, but he's also great. <laughs> I think it was a romance that blossomed after he started working, but... Mm. Not in yeah. my version. 
Not in the fanfic we're writing, <laughs> which is basically the French Dispatch, but just this. Anywho, White steadily became the best known writer at The New Yorker and grew in prominence, um, eventually sort of becoming a household name and winning a special Pulitzer Prize for like Lifetime Achievement Award, as well as a Presidential Medal of Freedom. In 1949, he published Here is New York. And in 1959, brought the elements of style to the masses, which was White's update, as I referenced earlier, of a 1918 book by his professor at Cornell. William Strunk Jr. White did a few updates of that and then passed it along to his stepson. Um, it also has been adapted into a short opera and has an illustrated version, which you can purchase. Hold up, what? Opera? I don't know, Bailey. <laughs> I don't have time to watch short operas. I just find the facts. And make sure you don't use adverbs. <laughs> As we've already started referencing, White is probably best known nowadays um, for his three children's novels, uh, which he began uh, writing for his niece before publishing them. Stuart Little was his first novel, came out in 1945, which was followed by Charlotte's Web in 1952, both of which eventually became huge hits. Apparently, Stuart Little was kind of only warmly received, but not a big hit. And then Charlotte's Web was like, oh, yeah. And then it subsequently, Stuart Little was like, oh, this was actually good. <laughs> um, uh, there was a bit of a layoff after Charlotte's Web in 1952 and his final children's book, The Trumpet of the Swan, was published in 1970, which was also warmly received. I haven't read that. Have you guys read that one? Yeah. Yeah, I've read that one. It's oh. about a swan who can't talk, but he can play the trumpet. Cool. Uh, and then he also gets a chalkboard that he can write words on. I don't know. Happy feet. Got it. <laughs> so enough about me talking about E.B. White. Let's hear what James Thurber, who you might remember from also being one of the like specific figures who's famous for being a writer for The New Yorker. Mm -hmm. um, basically, he, he was pointing out that E.B. White was super shy and did not like people, which is relatable. <laughs> this is James Thurber describing E.B. White trying to avoid meeting somebody at the office mm -hmm. who, had, who had an appointment. <laughs> Quote, most of us out of politeness made up out of faint curiosity and profound resignation would go out to meet the smiling stranger with a gesture of surrender and a fixed grin. But White has always taken to the fire escape. <laughs> Hmm. I think he's my new idol. Game recognized game. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, continuing the quote, he has avoided the man in the reception room as he has avoided the interviewer, the photographer, the microphone, the rostrum, the literary tea, and the stork club. His life is his own. He is the only writer of prominence I know who could walk through the Algonquin lobby or in between the tables at Jack and Charlie's and only be recognized by his friends. Mm. Um, so yeah, he sort of was less into the literary celebrity that becoming a prominent New York writer brought him. And unsurprisingly, as we've already referenced, he ended up leaving New York and moving to Maine, yeah. he specifically settled in Brooklyn, Maine, which is a small town near Deer Isle that I have been to. Me too. There you go. Later in life, uh, he suffered from Alzheimer's disease and eventually passed away through complications from that on October 1st, 1985 in Brooklyn, Maine. He's buried in the Brooklyn Cemetery next to his wife, Catherine, who predeceased him in 1977. And that is E.B. White. Nice. Love it. New York born, but Maine's own in his heart. <laughs> Icon. Here is here was E.B. White. Good facts, Andrew. So that is Here's New York by E.B. White. Low three stars. Mm -hmm. So, Bailey. Yeah. Uh, people are talking about you behind your back, and I just thought you should know. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I wanted to tell you. But did you read a book also? Oh, my God, Andrew, you can't ask people if they read a book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did read a book, and I'm very excited to tell you about it. Mm. I read a book called Queen Bees and Wannabes by Rosalind Wiseman. I'm sorry, Queen Bees and Wannabes, colon, <laughs> Helping Your Daughter Survive Clicks, Gossip, Boyfriends, and Other Realities of Adolescence by Rosalind Wiseman. Nice. 
Fetch, fetch, fetch. This is the basis for the movie Mean Girls, uh, written by Tina Fey. And so that's why we're making all these. And we will continue to make all these Mean Girls references as we go on. Don't you tell me what to do. (laughs) So Queen Bees and Wannabes is a nonfiction parenting advice book. It covers both um, sons and daughters, but particularly focuses on daughters from like middle school through high school. And talks about... Basically everything that you see in the movie Mean Girls in a more serious way. I'm yes. just curious. Did you get this book because of Mean Girls? Or yes. like Okay, good. I picked this up at like a Goodwill um, just because I saw it and I was like, oh, I'm interested to learn more about this. And then I held on to it for what, 20 years until now? <laughs> I don't know how long time is. Okay, so it's essentially an advice book for parents and you know, this doesn't so much apply to me yet, or I guess anyone here yet, um, maybe more so when I was a teacher of high school students, because I, I was actually reading this at the same time I was reading Toddler 411, <laughs> A Guide to Raising Your Toddler. <laughs> it was very different. So, you know, there's um, chapters broken up into different sections, like toxic friendships, boyfriends and girlfriends, um, the social order at school, parties, drinking drugs, that sort of thing, and just like how to approach it. And basically, like, how can you make it so your daughter will come to you with these problems versus hiding it and not saying anything. And then you find out later and you're like, oh, my God, all this has been happening. Because one of the main thesis is everyone's daughter is lying to them. Nobody is telling the truth. They are lying. So there you go. That sounds like an interesting book, honestly. It sounds really good. It, it is interesting. Like, I, I mean, it makes sense that it took me this long to read it because, you know, it's not relevant. But like, yeah. There's a lot of good things in here, and I kind of thought maybe I should save it for when Maggie's grown up mm. um, or a little older. You know Maggie's going to rage. <laughs> There's sections, too, that talks about, like, the different kinds of girls. And it's like I can see myself and my friends and the other people at school in the different archetypes. But I should say, so this is written by, if you've seen Mean Girls, you remember the Tina Fey character. In the movie, she is a math teacher. But then there's this part where she hosts, like, sort of a seminar for all the women in the gym and she's like raise your hand if you have been if you've talked behind someone's back mm-hmm. um, or raise your hand if you someone's talked about you behind your back are you guys remembering this scene yes yes it's a good scene that person is Rosalind Wiseman that she just goes to different schools and does things like that and creates relationships with these kids and finds out from them what's actually going on and so all of her information is gathered from like real teens that's crazy she seems like the rarest of beings which is the high school speaker that can actually connect with kids because i feel like i saw like maybe 20 high school speakers and one of them was good and i was like wow but i didn't want to show that i was impressed so i just like you know yawned or whatever but i know that's that's pretty cool I know. I was impressed, too. Um, And also one thing that I liked that I didn't see in the Mean Girls adaptation is, like I said, she talks a lot about boys as well and about how they have a lot of these same cliques Mm -hmm. um, or the same hierarchy and also this pressure to be, quote, masculine um, and how feminine is considered bad, which is the opposite for the women. And also they talk a little bit, I could, it could be more, but about diversity issues, about race, mm. class. They interview kids, you know, black kids, South Asian kids, Asian kids. Like, there's more diversity <laughs> to the perspectives in the book, which I appreciate. For the sequel, Mean Boys? Actually, Andrew, I'm sure, will have more information, but they do have a sequel about boys. Is that right, Andrew? Yes. One of her additional books is called Masterminds and Wingmen, Helping Our Boys Cope with Schoolyard Power, Locker Room Tests, Girlfriends, and the New Rules of Boy World. Boy World. Yeah, a lot of this book references Girl World, and let me take you into Girl World. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's kind of like, I'm going to keep referencing Mean Girls, but it's like 
picture that you're at a savanna and there's like <laughs> a watering hole and this is the hierarchy and you want to make sure that you're in, but you might have to compromise who you are, etc. So in that way, I found it really helpful. Um, I found it interesting. I think this book came out pre-cell phones, oh, <laughs> uh, pre, it's pre-iPhone and social media. So I think things would be a lot different today. Like she references three-way calling and stuff that would not exist. Um, <laughs> or like, you know, in Mean Girls, the burn book, that would just be probably like an Instagram post or something. Yeah. And so I'd be interested to see, to read like an updated version. But I think overall, like the things she writes about seem sound and interesting and clearly they influence the movie. So I'm going to read a part from it and you tell me when, when you hear the reference to the movie. I'm so ready for this. She, throughout the book, will give quotes from teenagers or tweens. Um, and I think some of the names are, you know, pseudonyms, but this is from Gabrielle 15. My group has rules and punishments about everything. There are seven of us and there can only be seven. I mean, we've kicked people out for breaking the rules and only then can we add someone. We have rules about what we wear. You can only wear your hair up like in a ponytail uh, once a week. On Wednesdays, we wear pink. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You can't wear a tank top two days in a row. You can only wear jeans on Friday and that's the only time you can wear sneakers. If you break any of these rules, you can't sit with us at lunch. And it goes on. You but. can't sit with us. <laughs> Wowzers. So there's a lot of that that's like directly into the movie. And you can see how Tina Fey took this source and was like, that's a movie. Um, and so by that, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good counterpoint to Mean Girls, which I think maybe uh, strengthens exactly what Rosalind is trying to work against, which is all of these, you know, stereotypes and archetypes that she's probably trying to fight. But I, I would recommend this book, especially if you're into this genre. I mean, I don't have much more to say about it without getting into specifics about like what to do if your kid is caught drinking and driving, which is not relevant. But I'll say it's a solid three stars. Mm. Pick it up if you're a big Mean Girls fan or if you have a teenager. A high three stars? I mean, I would say it's a solid down the middle three stars. But to be fair, books like this, like parenting advice books, usually are three stars for me. Yeah. It's yeah. rare that I'm like blown away. Makes sense. Yeah. I, I know that was quick, but I'm sure that Andrew has some facts and then we can make some Mean Girls references. <laughs> yeah. Wow. We just, Pedro's, this might be the two quickest reviews we've ever had and they happen to be in the same episode. We have to acknowledge that this is one of the weirder combinations of books we've ever had. I love it. Yes, that's true. We've had some weird ones before, but rarely have they both been weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll say one more thing. Throughout it, there are landmines, which is like, and it, what font is this, Dylan? Ooh, ugly. Ugly font. Um, and it will be like, be careful when you talk to your daughter. Like, this is landmine. Girls can't stand the word clicks and will immediately be defensive if you use this word to describe their group of friends. They assume you're accusing them of being exclusive. Don't read this chapter and immediately ask your daughter what click she's in. That's a very good piece of advice. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> anyway, do you have any facts, Andrew? <laughs> Yeah, I do. You guys ready? <laughs> All right. Rosalind Wiseman was born in 1969 and grew up in Washington, D.C., District of Columbia. Heard of it? I have. I've been there. Oh, good. Her parents, Kathy and Steve, worked in management consulting and real estate, respectively, and she attended the Merritt School before moving to Los Angeles to study at Occidental College. Mm. In addition to academic pursuits, when she majored in political science, uh, she began practicing martial arts, achieving a second-degree black belt in Tang Soo Do Karate uh, by the time she graduated. Why I bring this up? Because... 
Studying martial arts is also where she met her future husband, James Edwards, who she married in 1996. And after leaving college, she returned to Washington, D.C. and began teaching martial arts to young women. Cool. Her work with the young women inspired her to work in youth empowerment and leadership building, um, which eventually is what led her to write Queen Bees and Wannabes in 2002. It was eventually a bestseller, and she's gone on to publish many more books. We referenced the one about boys. Uh, her immediate follow-up was about parents, and they all have kind of fun titles, like the parents one is Queen Bee Moms and Kingpin Dads, dealing with parents, teachers, coaches, and counselors who can make or break your child's future. Oh, man. I want to be a Kingpin Dad. <laughs> I'm not a normal dad. I'm a Kingpin Dad. <laughs> Um, she also has updated Queen Bees and Wannabes. Uh, in 2009, there was a, another title called Queen Bees and Wannabes, helping your daughter survive clicks, gossip, boyfriends, and the new realities of Girl World. Oh, wow. So that's a slight update. Her most recent book came out in 2022. Heard of it. Um, <laughs> and it's called Courageous Discomfort, How to Have Brave, Life-Changing Conversations About Race and Racism, which was co-authored with Shantara McBride. Cool. She's also the creator of something called the Owning Up Curriculum, which encourages socially responsible methods of learning and teaching. She's published a few books on that, and that seems to be one of the major things she works at. She's also a, available for uh, public speaking engagements in addition to her writing. She lives in Boulder, Colorado with her husband and two sons. Awesome. She didn't have a lot of bio available on the internet, um, but I did find an interview with her. So this interview um, is actually conducted at the release of her second book, which is about parents. However, it references the first book quite a bit. First question. When you were a girl, were you a queen bee? <laughs> I'm sure everybody was wondering, but Rosalind has an answer. And here it is. Once people read queen bees and wannabes, I'm often asked to qualify the kind of girl I was when I was younger based on the characterizations I offer in the book. I think people assume that I was either a queen bee, so my work is an attempt to right the wrongs I committed when I was young, or people assume I was the opposite and was cruelly teased and targeted by other girls. Actually, like most people, I played different roles depending on my age and circumstance. From third through fifth grade, I was often teased by my friends. At the same time, I was a horrible queen bee to a very nice girl I grew up with, oh. much to my mother's horror and embarrassment. When I was in sixth grade, I moved to a new city and went to an all-girls school, and that's where I had my first experiences with mean girls, quote, I barely knew. At the same time, there was also really nice girls at school who reached out to me who I will always remember fondly. Nobody thinks that they're the queen bee. I... <clears throat> I'm sure I've shared this on the podcast before, but like my thought is I was like the loser that everyone made fun of. But then like a few years ago, someone was like, you bullied me in high school. And I was like, what? <laughs> wow. You straight up had the Liz Lemon thing happen to you. <laughs> yeah. So we wanted to be friends with you, but you were just really mean. So I don't know. Maybe it's just a thing like as a kid, you just have chronic imposter syndrome and think everybody's after you. I was a worker bee who used his wings to help uh, better stabilize the hive. Uh, mm -hmm. Having gone to high school with Dylan, I can say that is not true. I was a drone. <laughs> no, Dylan was a force of destabilization. Um, anywho, next question. Why did you get into this work? Although there were and continue to be many reasons why I do this work, I think one of the most enduringly influential was an experience I had in Mr. Rosenberg's eighth grade history class. We were studying the civil rights movement and one of the assigned books was a compilation of interviews entitled My Feet Are Tired But My Soul Is Rested. The one that stood out was an interview with Fred Shuttlesworth, a minister from Birmingham, Alabama, who had helped lead boy cats and demonstrations. I was so moved by his words that I wanted to meet him. The next thing I knew, my mother had connected with a friend of hers who lived in Cincinnati, where Reverend Shuttlesworth had moved and now led his congregation. While staying with our family friends over the weekend, I attended Reverend Shuttlesworth's church service and interviewed him about his role in the civil rights movement. That weekend changed my life. For the first time, I had a glimmer of what my future path would be. I wasn't sure how, but I knew no matter what I did when I grew up, I wanted to do something that made the world a more socially just place. That's cool. 
And a final quote from this interview. Do you have kids? How has that changed you? And Rosalind answers. I have two sons that are two years apart. Has it changed me? Yes and no. I don't think I'm a better teacher to young people because I have kids of my own, but I do think I'm much better at working with parents since having kids. It's much easier to empathize or even understand the craziest parenting behavior because you know that being a parent can make even the most sane person feel like they're losing their mind. Like most parents, my children teach me more about myself than frankly I often want to know. There's no one I love more or makes me laugh harder than only a second later makes me want to scream and pull my hair out. My husband and I struggle like so many parents on this exact same issues I write about, and we don't get through it any easier. Mm-hmm. And that is Rosalind Weissman. Thank you for your great facts, Andrew. Good facts, Andrew. And then it's Queen Bees and Wannabes. Three stars. All right. Three star central this episode. Andrew, how many stars are you going to give us, a.k.a. what's the game? That, that, that sentence made sense. Just go with it. Yeah, that made great sense. Hey, guys, let's believe in ourselves a little more here. We're doing yeah. great. Okay. All right. So I do have a game this week. Do you guys want to play? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. The game this week is called Where You Bean. Okay. Okay. It's a pun on the word bee, like queen bee and wannabe. He doesn't even go here. Jillian came up with the idea for this game, which has been happening more and more. And here's how we're going to play. You guys are going to participate, Bailey and Toby, in a spelling bee. Oh, no. Yes. Yes. I hate you, Jillian. The words I have picked are inspired by where you come from, because, I, you know, Here is New York is a book about a location, and specifically, uh, E.B. White is then from Maine. So, Toby, you'll be spelling the name of towns in Maine. What? Uh-huh. And Bailey, you'll be t- spelling the name of towns in Northern California. Oh, wow. <sighs> okay. <laughs> so, we reversed it so that no one gets an unfair advantage. Uh, we'll see how this train wreck goes. Let's try to keep it on the tracks. Right. Uh, you each have five words. We will see how we do. We're going to use standard format here. Please uh, say the name, spell the word, and then finish by saying it again. For example, dog, D-O-G, dog. Oh, I knew that one. Each question is worth two points. Um, however, the person who is from the place will get a chance to steal, um, mm. And but a steal is only worth one point. Got it. Can I ask for it in a sentence definition language of origin? Can I have a country of origin for dog? <laughs> uh, no, you cannot, Dylan, because you're not playing. Uh, you can ask it for it to be used in a sentence is the only option, okay? Okay. Okay. The limit does not exist. <laughs> All right, Toby, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, Orono. Oh, God, starting off strong. Okay. Orono. O R I N E. A-U, Orono. <laughs> All right. Steel? There's no need to cackle. All right. <laughs> uh, that is incorrect. Bailey, would you like to steal? Orono. O-R-O-N-O, Orono. Oh, wow. I really made that a lot Correct. harder than it had to be, didn't I? <laughs> hey, you were looking for my sneaky ways, yeah. and that's fine. I was thinking maybe there's some French-Canadian pressure coming down from the north. I don't know. Understandable. Uh, Bailey has got one point for stealing. However, it's now Bailey's turn on the hot clock. Okay. Vacaville. Oh, that's so much easier. (laughs) Vacaville. Can you use it in a sentence, please? I've been to Vacaville. (laughs) I actually have been to Vacaville. Vacaville. V-A-C-A-V-I-L-L-E. Vacaville. That's correct. That is correct. Yes! We said Vacaville so many times. Toby, is that how you say Vacaville? It's Vacaville. Well, I mean, it's weird because it's from the Spanish word vaca, which is cow. But if you're from Northern California, you say Vacaville. Yeah. 
Well, I never heard these words said out loud before. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, Toby, I'm sorry. Millinocket. Uh, Millinocket. M-I-L-A-N. Millinocket. A-W-K-E-T? No, your your heart was in the right place, but that is incorrect. Toby, you're making it too hard on yourself. Well, what's the spelling then? I don't know. Millinocket. Uh, Bailey, would you like to steal? Yeah, Millinocket. M-I-L-L-O-N-O-C-K-E-T. <laughs> That's hard. I think you missed an N. Uh-huh. Are there two Ns? I think you skipped the N, Millinocket. Mm. Oh, my bad. Oh, Bailey, you're making, it, you're making it harder than it has to be. Me, 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 Pages, I apologize if I misheard that, but I do believe Bailey skipped a letter in the middle there, and uh, she should feel bad. I was being too cocky. I went too fast. Mm-hmm. Andrew, you didn't bring a bell with you? <laughs> Ding. Ding. All right, Bailey, your turn. Okay. Copperopolis. What? Nah. N- nope, that's all. <laughs> co- co- I don't know okay, this place. Okay, in a sentence, please. I've been to Copperopolis. <laughs> <laughs> Copperopolis, C O P P E R O P O L I S. That's correct, Bailey. Well done. Pretty good. That's what I would have said I too. I sounded it out in my head. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. That's one that maybe looks funnier on a map than it was difficult to spell. Hmm. And I apologize, hmm. Toby. That's on me. No worries. Um, Machias, Toby. Machias. Um, M-A-C-H-I-A-S, Machias. That is correct, Toby. Well Uh, done. Yay. (laughs) I was like, how is there possibly another spelling of this? All right, great, great. A wonderful town in Maine. Uh, Bailey, your turn. Yep. Ukaya. (laughs) Ukaya. Language of origin, please. I've been to Ukaya. (laughs) Um, (laughs) O-U-Q- U-I-A. Okay. <laughs> that is wildly that's, incorrect, that's Toby. Fine. Would you like to steal? That's nice. Yeah. U-K-I-A-H. Ukaya. What? That is yeah. correct, Toby. So again, it's easier to understand if you say it in a Northern California way, which is Ukaya. Um, it's on the way up to Humboldt from the Bay Area. Yeah, there you go. All right. So we've each had three rounds. There's two more each. Bailey is leading. However, it is still very much within reach. Toby has three points and Bailey has five. Okay, here we go. All right. Brooklyn. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you said this, Andrew, because I was going to spell it earlier. Oh, I'm glad I didn't. I know there's two ways of spelling Brooklyn. I'm going to go with the other way. B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E. Brooklyn. Ooh. That's the Massachusetts way. Oh. And I think that's that's a town in Massachusetts. I have to let Bailey have a chance here. Brooklyn. B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N. Brooklyn. What? That is Without correct. The Bailey e? does get a steal there. That's There's no line. E. It's just um. Come on. It's just a, the I for the Y. I am so sorry, Toby. Oh my God. How would I? Okay. Continue. Maybe I'll be able to steal from Bailey here. Twain Hart. Twain Hart. Um. Twain Hart. T W A I N H E A R T. Twain Hart. That's what I would have guessed. That is incorrect. Toby, would you like to steal? Um, hmm. I don't know this place. Let's say Twain Hart. T-W-A-I-N-E. 
H-E-A-R-T? No, unfortunately, that is incorrect on both of y'all's parts. Uh, Twain Hart is T-W-A-I-N. That part is correct. Space H-A-R-T-E. Oh, wow. Boo. These old-timey old Californians, <laughs> they all had like mercury in their blood or whatever. All right. It all comes down to this. Um, Toby, if you do not get this correct, it's impossible for you to win. Okay. So it comes down to this. And I apologize that I've left this one. Oh, no. Till the end. Passa Dumkieg. I do not know this. Say it very slowly. Passa Dumkieg. Passa Dumkieg. Passa Dumkieg. Passa or Patha? Passa Dumkieg. Passa. With a TH. No, no, no. Oh, I can't tell you what it starts with, but Passa like pasta. Okay. Passa Dumkieg. Okay. P A S A D U M K I E G. Passa Dumkieg. That is very close, however incorrect. No. I think it ends K-E-A-G. Yeah, that's a very uh, main ending word. Um, It is P-A-S-S-A-D-U-M-K-E-A-G. Pass a dumb gig. So unfortunately, Toby, that does mean that you are incapable of winning the game. However, it was a well-fought match. Congratulations. You'll all be getting scholarships from Scholastic Book Club. Ooh. Well, thank you for that awesome game. Amazing game. Um, Good job, me. I enjoyed getting them wrong. I do want to say a quick story, which is that I had a coworker. I asked him how to spell a word, and he said G O O G L E. And I was <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> wow, harsh. Fired. All right, well, thank you for that awesome game and for our awesome reviews. Now it is time for our favorite person on the podcast to choose books at random from our shelves to read next. Dylan, um, I think you're really pretty. Um, can you do the choosing? Uh-uh. The choosing. The choosing. The choosing. <laughs> well, thankfully, I don't have to do Toby's choosing because we all know his book. It's Infinite Jest. It's Infinite Jest. And uh, for Bailey, I feel bad because we're already in January. And unfortunately, I have to cut her year of re- rest and relaxation short. Oh. <gasps> because Bailey got number 51, Lapvona by Otessa Moshfeng. I know nothing about this book besides that it's Altessa Moshfeg and it has a lamb, like a dead lamb on the cover. Um, ooh, I'm excited. Do you know none of the like um, opinions surrounding it? No. Do you, Toby? Scuttlebutt. Give us a, give us a teaser. Um, I have heard it is supposed to be disgusting, like revolting, ooh. really nasty grossness. So enjoy that. Fun. Yeah. Fun times. Okay. Well. Let's make Fetch happen. And in two weeks on the podcast, Andrew has The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay. Mm-hmm. And I have Lapvana by Otessa Moshfank. Nice. Ooh. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List Podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. And if you want to help us find more listeners, one way you can do that is leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. It helps more people find our podcast. And you can also rate cities that you've lived in that you no longer like, if you'd like, to help people pick where to go on vacation. (laughs) And, uh, of course, you can always, if you really want to do us a favor, spread the word around your little clique of friends, your little clique that you spend time in, your little exclusive little club of friends. You can tell them about our podcast and say, you know, we used to listen to it and that you like it. And, yeah. Yeah, word of mouth is our best uh, advertisement, especially within your exclusive little click. Yeah, let them know that we're really pretty and yeah. cool. Please. Yeah. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song, You Can Sit With Us. See you in two <laughs> weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. books, books. books. books.